Today I'm going to continue in the series that I started a couple of weeks ago. It's a series called The Case for Grace. Every time I begin a new series, there's a passion that becomes the undercurrent that lifts my wings. The passion for this series is to restore the image of the Father's goodness. How do we do that? By pulling back the curtains of darkness, of religion, and allowing the radiance of the new covenant of grace to shine into our hearts. The finished work of grace was written in a language that everyone can read. It's the language of love. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Isn't that beautiful? The language of love. There is no greater display of love than the giving of Christ Jesus on the cross. Would you like to know what the revelation of the Father's love does for your heart? Would you like to know what it does to your heart? Well, one of the first things it does is it releases us from the performing to please approach to Christian living. That's one of the first things it does is it just releases you from that bondage. That you always have to work to please the Father. I'm telling you, He's already pleased with you. Throughout this series, I want us to see that believers truly can live lives free of condemnation, void of condemnation. Now, that may seem like a bit of a stretch, but I assure you that it's possible. I know because I'm living that life. I do recognize that from time to time, condemnation will try to come and knock. I can sense it. It has a voice that I recognize. Why do I recognize it? Because I lived with it for so many years. You can't disguise it. And so we can live lives free from guilt and shame and condemnation. I also want us to grasp how wide and long and wide and deep is the love of Christ, and to know the love that surpasses knowledge. And the scriptures say that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Isn't that awesome? That you might be filled so airy, so light, so liberated. When you have the awareness of His unconditional, satisfying love. I'm talking about Daddy's love. <laughs> Daddy's love. The love that is apprehended only by grace through faith. You can't get it any other way. You see, when a person encounters God's perfect love for them, and when they become convinced of His faithfulness at all times to them, then all of their irrational fears will be discarded. The Scriptures tell us that perfect love, come on, it casts out all fear, doesn't it? Come on. Irrational fear is the fear that has no logical or reasonable basis, kind of like a monster under a little child's bed. You could say to the little kid, have you ever seen the monster? Little kid would say, no, I've never seen him. Irrational fear. No logical basis. No reasonable basis. Many believers agonize with thoughts of losing their salvation. And it creates irrational fear. These thoughts have no logical or reasonable or even biblical basis, yet they persist. Much of the body of Christ is burdened, saddled like an old mule with irrational fear. The concern that many believers have about a future punishment for the sins that they continue to commit 
like one day God at the end of days when we're all called before him is going to hang a jumbotron in the sky and he's going to play all your thoughts and all the things you've ever done in your life so that the whole world can see. Friends, that is not biblical. It's not biblical. Yet many believers struggle with that fear, even though there's no basis for it. But why do we think like that? That's the question. Why do we consider to think like that? And I'll tell you why. One of the reasons is because of a lifetime of sanctuary programming that has taught us different ways. It's a lifetime. It's that Sunday morning. It's that Wednesday night. It's that Sunday night once in a while. It's that revival, that week of revival. And constantly over and over again, they're trying to reaffirm a message that has no biblical basis to it whatsoever. Now, the problem is, is once these fears grow a root system, everything grows roots, friends. Your mind is like a tree. And once these fears grow a root system in a believer's mind, unmasking these fallacies is near impossible without a revelation of the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, uh, I'm an observer, and in my observations and in the conversations I've been involved in over the years, I have found that believers have an abundance of elasticity. When an opportunity presents itself to grow beyond their current belief system, they may listen to you for a moment. They may ask a question or two. You might even get a nod or two out of them. But then they just snap right back into what they've been programmed with. Just so you know, elasticity is defined as the ability for an object or material to resume its shape after it's been stretched or compressed. In other words, when a law-centered believer's way of thinking is stretched, and that's what's happening, you are stretching them to think differently, stretching them in ways that makes them uncomfortable. That's why people get uncomfortable, is because unknowingly they're being stretched either to reject you or to accept your message. But they're very comfortable usually with what they already believe. And even in the face, even in the light of absolute truth and grace, they easily return to the same shape and the same condition that they were in before they considered what you spoke to them. Now, the question becomes is how and why does this happen? The deepest culprit is indoctrination. There is a common denominator in people who sit in a classroom at school, a lecture hall at college, or a sanctuary at church. Would you like to know what that common denominator is? I'll tell you what it is. They're being indoctrinated. They're being indoctrinated by their teachers. Their teachers are essentially inoculating, vaccinating their students' mind, but it's with more than just information. The teachers are building an infrastructure, a highway, a grid, a platform, a web, if you will, a complicated network of ideologies that will ultimately shape their students or in the church, the disciples' way of thinking. And granted, many times we shape it in very positive, very meaningful, very productive ways. But at other times, the teacher's input can be very harmful, it can be very negative, and it can be very destructive. At times, teachers unintentionally set their students on a trajectory for a lifetime filled with irrational fear. I see people dealing with irrational fear all the time. It's ubiquitous. Have you ever noticed that many of the highways that ministers have constructed in their disciples' minds have no rest stops along the journey? You want to know why? 
That's because the emphasis is placed on working for God. That you must work for God. Work for God to prove your salvation. Work for God because you're saved. Work, 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 work. I'm not opposed to working for God, but that is not my identity. I am not a worker for God. I'm not some sort of worker bee for God. I'm his son. He's my daddy. He's my father. And I like it best when I'm just really on his lap, my hands interlocked around his neck, looking up into his wonderful, majestic, loving eyes, and just saying, hi, daddy. Hi, daddy, I love you. I like that best, don't you? Doesn't that be, you know, swinging the sledgehammer? Come on, working for God. So have you ever noticed that there's not a lot of rest stops along your journey in life? I've noticed that. There are no oases to refresh the tired and wearied and to park the troubled soul in rest. To make matters worse, there are no exits. You can't seem to get off this stinking highway. You're pounding the pavement over and over. That's what converts are left to do for the balance of their earthly lives. What a tiresome way to live. Wouldn't you agree? But what did Jesus have to say about that? Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. I want you to see it in the ERV. That's the easy to read version, okay? Jesus said, Come to me, all you who are tired from the heavy burden you have been forced to carry, and I will give you rest. Accept my teaching. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will be able to get some rest. Thank you, Jesus. Yes, the teaching that I ask you to accept is easy. The load I give you to carry is like, wow, that seems so simple. And that's because it is. So, then what gets in the way of resting in Christ's finished work? Come on, something's getting in the way. What is it that gets in the way of Christ's finished work? Well, Jesus just told us in these scriptures that our rest is stolen through the heavy burdens that we have been forced to carry. That's what Jesus just said there. He called out the problem right out of the gate, and he said, here's your remedy. Come to me. I'm going to give you rest. Listen to me. Walk with me. Work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. <laughs> You say, Pastor Mark, can you give me a couple of examples of heavy burdens? Oh, yes, 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 I could. Of course I can. Yes, absolutely. The first one, friends, is irrational fear. Heavy burden to carry. It's a terrible burden to carry. I'm talking about the fear that has no logical, no reasonable no biblical basis. It's just like a monster under the bed. Now listen, friends, there is something called natural fear. You can't get rid of natural fear. Natural fear makes sense. Natural fear kind of protects you. If I'm walking along the ledge at the Grand Canyon and there's no gate, no fence to hold me, and all of a sudden my foot slips, that's fear. That's natural fear. I would say, okay, we don't walk as close now, right? Natural fear is okay, but irrational fear is not. That's a heavy burden. How about the thought of losing our salvation? That's another example of a heavy burden. And it's the number one struggle among Christians. Somehow, I'm going to undo this. Somehow. I'm going to make a mistake just before he comes, just before the sky splits and Gabriel sounds the horn, the trumpet. I'm going to have done something I haven't asked for forgiveness for, and I'm going to be left behind, just like the old series, right? Irrational fear. 
No biblical basis whatsoever. But that's the number one struggle for believers. How about the thought of a future judgment and punishment for our sins? That one is in the top five concerns, and it becomes a heavy burden. How about a new covenant mule saddled with old covenant cargo? Heavy burden. These are the recipes for the thief of rest, and they become about as useful to us as a hammer made out of marshmallows. <laughs> There's just no point in it. Due to hardship and persecution, and because we get stretched, because we get compressed in life, that's part of life. We shouldn't get it from the church too. Life will stretch you. Life will press you down, shake you together. But because of hardship at times, because of persecution, because of getting stretched and compressed in life, a believer in Christ can become so disillusioned that they flip-flop. They vacillate back and forth between two opinions. John the Baptist, Jesus' own first cousin, vacillated between two opinions. While in prison, John sent his own disciples to ask Jesus if he was the one to come or should we expect someone else? What? Are you kidding me? I got a question for you. How could the man who introduced Jesus as the Lamb of God, nobody had been called that name before. John, when he saw him walking into the Jordan River, didn't say, hey, that's my cousin, guys. No, he said, hey, that's the Lamb of God. He takes away the sin of the whole world. What in the world is John doing asking this question? Are you the one who was to come? Or should we kind of expect somebody else? Could it have been that John had grown tired and wearied? Could it have been that John was carrying a heavy burden? You see, in prison, John could find no exit ramp. In prison, John's soul became troubled, and there was no oasis there to refresh his heart in Christ. What John needed to hear in that moment was greater than the jangling of prison cell keys. John needed a word from Jesus. John was looking for a word from Jesus. I believe that Jesus told this story so that you and I could also have hope when we find ourselves in prison. I'm talking about an emotional prison, right? The prison that locks us up through poor indoctrination. So what was Jesus' response to John's disciples? They're coming with a question. Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Legitimate question. Well, let's take a look at Jesus' response. Matthew chapter 11, verses 4 and 5. Jesus said, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Jesus said, the blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and look what he said for last, friends. <laughs> and the good news, that's the gospel. The good news is proclaimed to the poor. Isn't that awesome? He didn't say, yeah, go back and tell John, yep, yeah, I'm the one. He just said, go back and tell him what you hear and what you see and what my mission is. If you can't dot the I's and cross the T's through that, then John, you got a bigger problem than just losing your head. <laughs> who was Jesus talking to when he said, come to me, all you who are tired from the heavy burden you have been forced to carry? He was talking to the Jews, the ones who were poor in spirit. And what exactly was it that they were tired from? Jesus said, are you tired? Who are you tired from? Was it your nine-to-five job? No, no, it wasn't that. 
They were tired of groaning under the weight of the ceremonial law and the traditions of their elders. You see, it wasn't a physical tiredness that Jesus wanted to rescue them from. It was an emotional, it was a mental, and it was a spiritual tiredness that they were dealing with, and the law had no ability to succor them. No ability whatsoever to comfort them at all. When Jesus said, come to me, I love that, come to me. He was saying, not just physically walk across the room. He was saying, put your trust in me. Jesus said, come to me. He was saying, trust me. When Jesus said, I will give you rest, what did he mean? I'm going to give you rest? From who? From what? Now let's answer the question. Logically, reasonably, and biblically. Rest from their empty ways of life handed down to them from their ancestors. Rest from their consciousness of sins. Friends, listen. You cannot find rest if you're conscious of your sin all the time. Even when you blow it, you cannot find rest if you are walking in a state of consciousness about your sins. Rescue them from their fear of death. Rescue them from judgment. Rescue them from rule-keeping. Rescue them from make-believe monsters under the bed. Rescue them from the prison cell of hopelessness. Rescue them from feeling like failures. And rescuing them from the ongoing need to bring lambs, sacrificial lambs, to the priests at the temple. Rest from the old covenant law. Friends, Jesus, come on, Jesus purchased our rest on the cross. He purchased our rest on the cross. The cross worked. Get that in your heart this morning. The cross worked. But when religion mixes the old and new covenants together, it saddles us like pack mules with heavy burdens and leads us on a trail that has no rest stops, no oases, no retreats, and no exits. With all of these thoughts in mind, I want to minister for the balance of this sermon through a message I'm calling Forsaking the Hybrid Gospel. The hybrid gospel is the most obscure and cunning thief of the believer's rest. The word forsaking means to leave behind. It means to leave someone or something behind. The word gospel means good news. Forsaking the gospel means to leave behind the good news. And unfortunately, that's what the church has done with the good news. They have left it behind. But what does the word hybrid mean? What does that word mean? Merriam-Webster will define hybrid as such. Hybrid is an offspring of two animals or plants of different subspecies, breeds, varieties, species, or types, a person whose background is a blend of two diverse cultures or traditions, something heterogeneous in origin or composition, consisting of dissimilar or diverse ingredients or constituents, and then it ends with the word mixed. <laughs> in case some of those words were too big for you, let's just concentrate on the word it ended with, okay? Mixed. That's hybrid, mixed. When looking at this definition, the word mix really grabbed my attention because the church continues to mix the old covenant with the new covenant. As a result, we have something that I call a hybrid gospel. You say, what's the problem with that, Pastor Mark? Why do you have a problem with that? Well, how about if we just disregard my thoughts and my opinions for just a moment and we read what the Apostle Paul had to say about the hybrid gospel. We see his words in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, and I want to read it from the Living Bible. The Apostle Paul said, I am amazed that you are turning away so soon from God, who in his love and mercy invited you to share the eternal life he gives you through Christ. 
you are already following a different way to heaven, which really doesn't go to heaven at all. And for there is no other way than the one we showed you. You are being fooled by those who twist and change the truth concerning Christ. Isn't that a, just a heartful? You are already following a different way to heaven, which really doesn't go to heaven at all. What did he mean by that, Paul? What did he mean by that statement? Paul was telling the Galatians that if they mixed any portion of self-righteousness or the law into their salvation, that they would end up with a hybrid gospel, which is no gospel at all. And in doing so, they would twist and change the truth concerning Christ and his finished work. I'm just going to make a statement here, and I hope you're with me on this. The hybrid gospel has no power to save. You see, the hybrid gospel is you and Jesus saving you. As I was talking to my friend last night, he's a barber. And I said to him, friend, if I was to come and get a haircut from you, and let's just say your haircut costs $30. And at the end of that haircut, I went to pay you, and you said, uh, you know what, uh, that's my gift to you. No charge to you. I said, well, thank you very much. But imagine now I reached into my wallet and got out a single George Washington. That's a dollar bill. And I said, I've got to give you something for it. If my friend took that $1 bill, that haircut would no longer be a gift. I just got a $29 discount on a haircut. He said to me, can you define grace? I said, I'd be happy to. I didn't want to give him some religious response, the unmerited favor of God. You know, I wanted to get up close and personal. But he said, define grace. I said, it's all Jesus and none of you. That's grace. He gives us what we cannot earn, what we do not deserve. That's grace. It's the tender heart, loving kindness of the Father given to us absolutely free. That's grace. If I add anything to his grace, it's no longer grace. If you do, it's no longer a gift. It's no longer grace. <laughs> Friends, when you discover that you're already perfect, in Christ, you'll unsaddle your pack mule, the one that has been carrying your burdens. Come on. Jesus is our burden bearer. Jesus is our burden bearer. That's why it says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, in another version. Weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Isn't that awesome? The church has taught that we need to be perfect to go to heaven, and I agree with that teaching. I do agree with that. But how do we become perfect? That's the real question. How do we get all the monsters out from underneath our bed? Because believe me, they're there. How do we get rid of that stuff? How do we quit vacillating between two opinions? He loves me, he loves me not. How do we unpack the mule of failure and fatigue and frustration? How do we find an exit ramp that leads us away from our sin consciousness? How do we retain the elasticity of the new covenant when stretched and compressed with the lies of the enemy? These are very real questions that believers struggle with, believe it or not. It begins with the foundation of knowing the Father's love for us, friends. It begins there. We must remind ourselves that the new covenant was written in the language of love, for God so loved the world. Greater love has no man than that he lay down his life for his friends. 
It's the love that surpasses knowledge. It's the love of Christ. It's a wide and long and high and deep love. It's the perfect love that casts out all fear. It's the love that invites us to share in the eternal life that the Father has given us through Christ. When this kind of love is at large in our hearts, then Matthew chapter 5, verse 48, is no longer an impossible scripture to fulfill. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48, he says, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. He said, You've got to be that perfect. Now, think about his audience for a second. The Jews. They're hearing something that is so foreign and so impossible that they're just absolutely beside themselves. What are you talking about being perfect? I just brought my lamb the other day, and they slit its throat and killed it and sacrificed it. I did it the week before. I did it the month before. No, no. Jesus, you've set the table with fine china. Okay, you want me to be perfect? That's impossible. And that's Jesus' point. He's showing you the point because all they had at that point in time was the law. And they knew the law couldn't make them perfect. So you want me to be perfect? How am I going to get there? Come on, Jesus. How are we going to get there? Well, let's look at Hebrews chapter 7, verses 18 and 19. Let's see if these are helpers for us. The former regulation is set aside. That's the law. Because it was weak and useless. Look at these words now, friends. Come on. For the law made nothing perfect. Now, you just told me I need to be perfect like your father in heaven. But the law is the only thing I know. And it doesn't make anybody perfect. So how is that possible? I'm on the Titanic. I might as well just wait until it hits the bottom. I'm sunk. I'm done. I'm dead. Impossible standard. It was weak and useless, and the law made nothing perfect. That word perfect means finished. It means complete. Jesus said, I want you to be finished. I want you to be complete. When you're complete, that means you lack nothing. When you're perfect, there's nothing you can add to it to make you better. If you are perfect, you can't add a single thing to it to make it better. He says here, I want you to be complete. I want you to be finished. I want you to be perfect. And then he says, the law made nothing. Come on, get these words. Underscore them in your heart this morning. The law made nothing perfect. That word nothing comes from the Greek word udais. It's a compound word. That means you take two separate words and put them together and make one word. Compound word, right? Udais comes from the Greek word ude, which means not, and heis, which means one. And when they're put together, they're strengthened in the Greek. It means not even one. The law made nothing, not even one perfect. So there is no standard. There is no precedence that we can go, well, it made Abraham perfect. It made Moses perfect. No, the law made nothing perfect. No one perfect. These are great scriptures when you get in conversations. They came up last night in my conversation with my friend because they were already churning in my heart. If there were ever scriptures that should create a mass exodus in the body of Christ to forsake the hybrid gospel, It's those two scriptures that you're looking at right there. The law made nothing perfect. In fact, the law will stuff more monsters under your bed. That's what will happen here. It says the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. In Romans chapter 7, verses 7 through 10, we find these words. What shall we say then? Is the law sinful? Certainly not. Nevertheless, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. This is the Apostle Paul reflecting backwards. He's on the right side of making that decision to come to Christ. But he's thinking back here. 
He said, I would have not known what sin was had it not been for the law. For I would not have known what coveting really was if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of coveting. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Once I was alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. You see... When grace is taught correctly, it will reveal the foolishness of trying to be justified, trying to be made perfect, trying to attain a higher spirituality by our own works of righteousness. Now, Jesus said, be perfect, therefore, even as your heavenly Father is perfect. So let's take a look at how we become perfect in Christ. We already know Jesus said, be perfect. We already know that the law made nothing perfect. So how do we become perfect then? Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. This is how we become perfect. For by one sacrifice, come on, do we need to go back to 101 to figure out who got sacrificed? No, we don't, do we? No. For by one sacrifice, he, not it, he, not them, one, One sacrifice, one man, for by one sacrifice, he has made perfect those. That's you, that's me, that's us, that's we, right? He has made perfect forever. How long? Forever. Not perfect until. Not perfect unless. Perfect forever. Perfect forever those who are being made holy. Look at that. Jesus set an impossible standard for them when he said, be perfect, even as my heavenly Father is perfect. They didn't know how to get there because all they knew was the law, and they knew the law pointed out failures, pointed out their sin, but it couldn't help them. But a better way is introduced by which we draw near to God, and this is the better way right here. It's the sacrifice of Jesus. In Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, now this is the same scriptures we read a minute ago, but it's through a different version. It's the message paraphrase. It says, I can't believe how you waver. Remember, I was talking about wavering a minute ago. I can't believe how you waver, how easily you have turned traitor to him who called you by the grace of Christ by embracing an alternative message. You know, like I always say, it's shake and bake and I help. That's an alternative message. He writes, it's not a minor violation. This is not jaywalking, friends. This is not skipping school. This is grand larceny. This is a felony. He says, it's not a minor variation. It's completely other. An alien message a no message, a lie about God. Those who are provoking this agitation among you are turning the message of Christ on its head. How many of you know you can't get anything done if you're standing on your head, right? You can't do the dishes on your head. You can't get any housework done. You can't get nothing done on your head, right? You can't think straight. Blood rushes to your head, knocks you out after a while. Again, what I find in these scriptures is that the Apostle Paul is relentless. He will not compromise. He won't give and take. Sometimes we allow people to win disputes and debates and arguments or whatever they may be because we're just tired. We've just had enough. We want to call it quits. We want to walk away from this conversation. But the Apostle Paul would not do that. He wouldn't do that. Forsaking the hybrid gospel is essential for salvation. And like I was telling my friend last night, look, you're saved, my friend. That's great. You're going to go to heaven. No matter if you want to stay under all this law stuff, you're going to go to heaven. I'm going to go to heaven as well, right? So we're going to be in heaven. The problem, though, is this. 
is you've got people listening to your voice. I've got people listening to my voice. And if you're telling them that they've got to obey all these laws to be right with God, that's a hybrid gospel, and that has no power to save. That's the problem. Because once something is diluted, it sends a totally different message. Now you've got false converts that are coming in because they feel like, I've cleaned up my act a little bit. I'm starting to obey God a little bit more. No, friends, it's Christ alone, putting your trust and faith in Him alone. That's really easy, isn't it? Unlike John the Baptist who wavered between two opinions, Paul will not ask the question, is Jesus the only way or should we expect another way? He won't ask that question, will he? Because Jesus said, I am the way. And I am the truth, and I am the life, and no man comes to my Father except through me. He wrote that the hybrid gospel was no minor variation. He said that the hybrid gospel was an alien message and a lie about God. And it's true. It's absolutely true. It's by grace through faith that we have been saved and not of ourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast, right? Adding anything to the finished work of grace is like letting a mule carry your burden instead of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a picture of a mule for those that will be listening by the internet the audience. There's a picture of a mule on our screen. I asked my friend last night, I said, do you know how you create a mule? He said, two mules get together. I said, no, sir, that's not how it's done. A mule is created by breeding a male donkey with a female horse. A mule is a mixture of two separate species. It is a hybrid of a female horse and a male donkey. When born, a mule will typically possess the head that resembles a donkey and the body that resembles a horse. Now, a mule makes a wonderful worker, a wonderful pack rat, a wonderful work animal. But the problem with the mule family is that they are sterile. Mules cannot get with other mules and have offspring. In other words, they cannot have babies because there's no life on the inside of them. The chromosome that makes up the reproductive cell is absent, and they are incapable of reproduction. Mules are infertile because they have an odd number of chromosomes. This is due to a horse that has 64 chromosomes, and when He's making the baby. He gives 32 of those. And the donkey has 32, so the donkey gives 31. Now you have 63 chromosomes in a mule. And it's not the quantity that's the problem. It's the one that happens to be missing. It's the reproductive one. It's the reproductive cell that's missing. They're missing something called gametes, G-A-M-E-T-E-S. Gametes are the reproductive cell of an animal or a plant. Therefore, mules have no reproductive cells. Friends, like the mule, the law is missing the chromosome that produces life. That's why no one can be justified. No one can get life from the law. It's missing the chromosome. What is that chromosome? Christ! Not works. Jesus said, I'm the life. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. And that is missing from the law. In Galatians chapter 3, verses 21 through 25, we find these words. Is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if the law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. But Scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Before the coming of this faith, look at these words, we were held in custody under the law, kind of like John the Baptist was held in custody. We were held in custody by the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So, 
The law was our guardian. Some versions say our schoolmaster. Some versions say our tutor. The law was our guardian, come on, until Christ. Until Christ. When guys are running the relay race, when the baton is handed off, the other guy stops running with them. You don't see two of the, on the same team running around the track at the same time. It was handed off. So the law was our guardian until Christ came that we might be justified. That is declared innocent. That is made right in the Father's eyes. That's that perfection that Jesus was talking about in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 48 when he said, Be perfect even as my heavenly Father is perfect. That we might be justified. How? Does it say by the law? No, it says by faith. The law does not require faith. It just requires obedience. That's all. Now that faith has come, look at these words. We are no longer under a guardian. And as I was telling my friend last night, I said to him, the law is like a chauffeur. It shows up at your home. Honks the horn, you come walking out. The driver gets out, opens the door, you get in the back of the limo, he shuts it, and he drives you to the cross. He puts the car in park, lets it idle because he's got to leave. He opens your door, lets you out, and turns around and heads back for another one. That's the purpose of the law, friends, is to bring you to Christ. The law was our guardian. The law was our schoolmaster. The law was our tutor. The law was our convictor to bring us to Christ. But it says right there, after faith has come, we are no longer under the schoolmaster. We're no longer under the guardian. We're no longer under the law. Christ is who we're under. Let go, please let go of performing to please God as a means of being righteous in His eyes. It can't happen that way. Now, I want to always make clear here that I am not antinomian. Antinomian means you're a law basher. You don't like the law. I love the law. It has a purpose. I told you it's to bring people to Christ. But we live by the Spirit. We live by Christ. So I'm not antinomian. The law, I'm very aware, it says it's perfect, converting the soul. The law is good. The law is holy. The law is righteous. Yes, all of that is true. But the law is no longer our guardian after we come to Christ. The Holy Spirit is our tutor. Wouldn't you rather be tutored by the Holy Spirit? See, you don't need an open book with the Holy Spirit. You are the open letter. You are the open book. He can speak to you everywhere you go. He does, doesn't he? Does he continue to convict the believer? Because that came up in conversation last night. Well, the Holy Spirit convicted me. I said, no, he didn't convict you. The scriptures say he convicts the world. The Holy Spirit's role is not to convict the believer. It's to convince the believer. And when you've done wrong, you know what he does? He comes along and he convinces you that you're a child of the king. That that lifestyle is not made for you. Those choices are not made for you. You're a child of the king. Now straighten your crown, if you will, and let's get on with life. No conviction, no condemnation. Let's just go enjoy life. Now I want us to carry this understanding and concept over into the spiritual realm for just a moment so that we can better understand the meaning behind the following scripture, Isaiah chapter 64, and verse 6. Does it look familiar? I'll give you a second. Looks familiar, doesn't it? All of us have become like one who is unclean. And all of our righteous acts. Now we're talking about, this was written by the prophet Isaiah. They're under an old covenant, right? All our good works, all our righteous acts. Like you were talking about, Treva, that righteous act of the young man who put gasoline in your car. Isaiah saying all of our righteous acts are like filthy rags. What? That's really getting thrown under the bus, isn't it? Seems like it, doesn't it? That I can go out and do something so righteous, but yet it's a filthy rag. Yeah, apart from Christ, that's exactly what it is. 
Now we're saved unto good works. That's what Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says. We're saved unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. We all shrivel up like a leaf, and like the wind, our sins sweep us away. Now, the word filthy translates as soiled, and the word rags refers to the menstrual cloth. These are not my words. These are what's behind our English words in the concordance, okay? So Isaiah is painting an extremely vivid picture as to what our righteous acts look like apart from the righteousness of Christ. Are we just going through the motions? Sure we are. But there's no life. They are merely dead works. You see, when a woman during her childbearing age receives her monthly menstrual flux, it communicates a message to her that's greater than it's just that time of the month. It's bigger than that. Because back in the day when, when this was being written, I'm telling you, the women, they wanted children. That was their identity. They wanted to pass along their heritage. They wanted to pass along their ancestry. It was extremely important. It was awful to be a barren woman back then. And so there's a message that is communicated that's far greater in Isaiah's message here that is, it's just that time of the month. The message that's being communicated when a woman would receive her period, the message she would say when she was expecting, hopefully this month I'll get pregnant, hopefully this month, and the menstrual period would show up, and she'd go, there's no life in me. Jesus is the life, friends. Righteousness comes from Him. It absolutely does. Now the Hebrew word behind our English word filthy is edah, edah. It is used only one time throughout Scripture. There are two letters, two Hebrew letters that make up the word Edah, the Hebrew letter Ayin and the Hebrew letter Dalet. Edah, Edah, Ayin, Dalet. Ayin means eyes to see. Dalet means door. Eyes to see the door. I find that interesting because that's exactly what Jesus was getting at when he declared himself to be the door. Our filthiness is taken away when we see the door. When we see Christ in all of his beauty and loveliness, our filthiness, not in our spirit because that's already taken away, but that residue that's in your mind is taken away. When we see Christ as the door, we see this truth in John chapter 10, verses 7 through 10, Jesus said these words. Then Jesus said unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. And then he says it again, I am the door. By me, not by religion, not by law, not by rules, not by commandments. By me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Next scriptures. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life in the womb, on the inside of you. That righteousness, that's what life is, righteousness. You cannot have life without righteousness. He says there, I am come that they might have life and that they might have it to the abundance. They might have it more abundantly. The abundant kind of life. I'm living the abundant life with Christ. And I'm not performing to get there. I'm not trying to pass anybody along the journey. I'm walking nice and slow like the disciples on the road to Emmaus. But then there's times I run like a deer too, like they did. Friends, if we are counting on our own righteousness 
to see Jesus, then our righteousness is as filthy rags, just exactly the way Isaiah said it. It is no more than two mules getting together. There can be no life. We have been unburdened through the freedom we have in Christ. Unburdened, unshackled. If we attempt to be justified by any portion of the law, then we have fallen from grace. Doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. We have fallen away from grace. Grace and faith and love. This is the currency of the new covenant, friends. There's no place for law in there. Like Valerie said a few weeks ago, that as you come into the revelation of how much God loves you, she said, your relationship is going to look like you're trying to obey all the laws. It's going to be your response. You're going to be kind and good, seasoned with salt, being good to people. We've been unburdened through Christ. We have freedom in Christ. The currency of the new covenant is Jesus' grace and faith expressing itself through love. My final scriptures, Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. The Apostle Paul would write, It is for freedom. Come on. It is for freedom, liberation, emancipation. It is for freedom that Christ has set us free. Stand firm then and do not let yourselves be burdened again by a yoke of slavery. Mark my words. I, Paul, tell you that if you let yourselves be circumcised, Christ will be of no value to you. That means if you follow that commandment, what you've already done is brought in a hybrid gospel because you've added to his finished work. And now you have to obey all the laws. He will become of no value to you. Again, I declare to every man who lets himself be circumcised that he is obligated to obey the whole law. It's all or nothing. And you have to obey it all the time perfectly. You who are trying to be justified by the law, you who are trying to be declared innocent, you who are trying to be made right, you are who are trying to become righteous, you who are trying to get rid of your filthy rags by the law have been alienated from Christ. You have fallen away from grace. You have fallen from the standard, the currency of grace. For through the Spirit... We eagerly await by faith the righteousness for which we hope. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. What is he saying there? The law has no value for your righteousness. The only thing that counts is faith. He's already supplied the grace. The only thing that counts is faith. Faith expressing itself in love. Friends, don't think it's strange that you are hearing truths that have been hidden from you throughout your entire Christian walk. The Scriptures tell us that even Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in grace among God and men. He was growing in the grace in a carpenter's shop as he was making little lawn ornaments. He was listening to his daddy and he was just growing in grace. Growing in wisdom so that when he was 12 years old, he could astonish all the teachers. You too are growing in wisdom and in stature and in grace with God and men. For me, growth in grace began the day that I gave the Holy Spirit permission 
to mess with the file cabinet of my mind. And that's what I told my friend last night. I said, if you want to stay stuck where you're at, that's fine. Just stay stuck. You're going to regret it. But if you'll give the Holy Spirit permission to mess with your little files up here. See, we don't like our files mess with. They're all in order. A, B, C, D, E, F, G. They're, they're all in this little order. I'm, I'm anal about this, friends. I like my stuff in order. See, we don't like our files messed with. But several years ago, I got really real with the Holy Spirit. And I said, Holy Spirit, go ahead and mess with everything. Because I know there's more to you that I haven't seen. And I'm tired of just name it and claim it and take it home and frame it. There's got to be bigger than that. I want your heart. I want to see your heart. And the Holy Spirit began to work in my heart, displacing shredding, throwing into the fireplace the files that didn't belong there. And then he started adding stuff in there. And I began to see the true heart of my Father that the growth in grace begins by forsaking the hybrid gospel. Friends, the wonderful truths that reach out to us from the message today are these. The finished work of grace was written in a language that everyone can read. It's the language of love. And it's the revelation of the Father's love for us that releases us from the performing to please attitude and approach to Christian living. The revelation of His perfect love delivers a death blow to irrational fear. I'm talking about the fear that has no logical, no reasonable, and no biblical basis. Friends, a believer's salvation can never be lost, and there is no future punishment for those who are in Christ Jesus. These fallacies have been unmasked through the new covenant of grace, and the monsters have been removed from under our beds. Coming into the revelation of the finished work of grace begins like I said, by giving the Holy Spirit permission to mess with the file cabinet of your mind. I assure you that once he starts, the desire to return to what once was loses its ability and its elasticity to take you back to the same shape and to the same condition that you were once in. You will grow. You will begin to grow in wisdom and in stature and in grace with God and men. Jesus said... Come to me. I love that. Trust me. Put your trust in me. Come to me. All you who are tired from the heavy burden you have been forced to carry, I will give you rest. Accept my teaching. Learn from me. I am gentle and humble in spirit, and you will be able to get some rest. Yes, the teaching that I ask you to accept is easy. The load I give you to carry is light. What did the Jews need rest from? Well, it was the weight that they were carrying of the ceremonial laws and the traditions of men. They needed rest from their empty ways of life. They needed rest from the consciousness of sin. They needed rest from the prison cell of hopelessness. They needed rest from their failures and from having to continually bring sacrificial lambs to the temple. Friends, Jesus, I told you, purchased our rest for us on the cross. We have it. When he carried the cross, he carried our griefs and sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we were healed. There are going to be times when because of hardship and persecution, we get a little challenged. We get a bit disillusioned. It's in these moments that we need to hear something greater than the jangling of the prison cell keys coming down the stone hallway. We need a word from Jesus is what we need. It will take you a long way. 
A single word from Jesus can unlock maximum security. Unlock any prison cell door. A single word. Friends, the mule is missing the chromosomes that produce life. And so it is with the law. It's missing the chromosome that imparts life. For if the law had been able to impart life, then righteousness indeed would have emerged out of the law. But it didn't, did it? Our righteousness apart from Christ is as filthy rags. A disappointment that communicates the message that there's no life on the inside of you. We are as perfect as we will ever be. We are as clean as we will ever get. We are as holy as we'll ever become. Therefore, the scripture is fulfilled. Be perfect! Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. It's a finished work. And where did our perfection come from? Well, we know the law made nothing perfect. We were made perfect by one sacrifice And that sacrifice was Jesus. Friends, there is no life in the mixture of covenants. I beseech you to at least consider the forsaking of the hybrid gospel. Father, on their behalf, I just give you permission to mess with their files. Mess with their little cabinets, Daddy. Mess with them. Take files out that don't belong there. Things that have had them stuck for years. Files that remind them of the monsters that are under their bed. Files that remind them at times that they're just a failure. Files that keep them coming back saying, I've got to sacrifice something I've messed up. No, this is not true. This is just irrational fear. It has no biblical basis. No common sense basis. But because we've been so indoctrinated through our classrooms, in our lecture halls, and even the sanctuaries at church, we believe things that are simply not true. Pin back, if you will, the curtains that have shaded people from being able to see the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It is Christ plus nothing! The Apostle Paul would not back down. He stood fearlessly, and he promoted and he preached the gospel Father, thank you. Thank you that your love is wide and deep, long and high. And thank you, Father, that we don't have to earn it. That is what grace is. Grace is undergirded by your love, and your love never fails. Father, I thank you. I celebrate your goodness. In Jesus' name, amen. This is Mark Testerman, Senior Pastor of Triumphant Grace Ministries. I want to say thank you for listening to the finished work gospel of Jesus Christ. I pray that the good news found throughout the message has richly encouraged you in the love of the Father. Friends, this podcast is supported by the generous financial support of its listeners. And if today's message has ministered to you, then would you consider a gift that ministers back to us? You can text the word GIVE G-I-V-E to 833-632-1315 or you can visit triumphantgrace.com and donate through PayPal or credit card. The cornerstone scripture for Triumphant Grace Ministries is found in Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Great grace, such grace, triumphant grace to you. God bless you.